Hey, I've been really thrilled to introduce our partnership with Slow Tide. Slow Tide sent me a bunch of beach towels last year. I loved them so much that I purchased a few and then gifted them for Christmas. And after I mentioned this partnership two weeks ago, I started getting DMs from listeners, the boys over at Rinsed Mag and a few others, showing me their new Slow Tide towels. Wildly positive feedback thus far. Funny to be that passionate about towels, but you will absolutely see why. I am thrilled to recommend them uh, once you get a couple. They are supporting this show, and as a result, you get 10% off website purchases. The promo code that you need to use is PODCAST, and their website is slowtide.co, not .com, slowtide.co. You get free shipping at 50 bucks, a free tote bag at 100 and free returns always. I'm all about the oversized beach towels, but they have changing ponchos, bath towels, and plenty more. I hope that you enjoy them. Slowtide.co, promo code PODCAST. And as a thank you to listeners who support this show via donation, we are giving away another surfboard this month. It's a Timponi surfboard that'll be made to your specs from Maui Leaf Light Construction. These boards leave less environmental impact through usage of recycled foam if you want the EPS, or solar-made foam if you want the polyurethane. It's laminated with hemp and flax cloth and bio-based resin. I have this exact board and I love it. Timponi Surfboards was founded by Jeff Timponi, but his son has entered the fold in recent years, brought along a degree in sustainable science management, and informed this whole Maui Leaf Light project. Here's the third in a series of sustainability PSAs that Nick is providing for us this month. In nature, everything is part of a system. Systems are made up of elements that interact and provide feedback to each other, which helps regulate the system's purpose as a whole. Systems are all around us, and none of them operate independently of each other. We as humans are also part of countless systems, and are actually comprised of systems. Take for example our digestive system, respiratory system, and our nervous system among several others. They are all interconnected, working together to operate our body, which is a system in itself. We, of course, are part of many systems. They may be meta-systems or they could be microsystems, but we for sure are interconnected in a diverse web of systems. Systems by nature are circular and never linear. A leads to B, then to C, which leads to D, then back to A, to continue again. The main takeaway from this is that all systems act in a circular manner. Switching thoughts. What is limitless? Can we think of anything on our planet that is endless? Think big. Is there anything that has no end? The atmosphere? Water? Dirt? Air? Trees? Life itself? It's very difficult to think of anything in the physical and natural world that is limitless. We live on a finite planet with finite resources, and our time here is also finite. These are two of the strongest defining principles in the natural world and essential to environmental sustainability. One, systems which make up our world work in feedback loops and should always be viewed as circular. And two, everything that dictates existence as we know it has a caring capacity which limits ability and therefore is finite. Think of our planet, 
a sphere suspended in space. By nature, it is round and can be measured. The surface area of our planet is 197 million square miles, of which only 29% of that is land, with the remaining 71% being water. A circular Earth with finite space. This is the world we live in. All too often, we are unaware of these basic principles in our daily lives. Part of the issue may be that we fail to even recognize them, and we've managed to create a world of our own, insulated from the natural forces that historically limit a sustained and balanced expansion. Throughout the world, monetary wealth and economic activity have become the measurement of our well-being. Our gross domestic product, or GDP, is relatively easy to measure when we compare them to things like health, happiness, or even community, which are more intrinsic gauges of our well-being. While the financial systems of the world are indeed systems, they are man-made systems being fed by man-made currencies and projected values that are no longer backed by tangible assets. As we continue to excavate the planet's natural resources, emptying the reserves of oil, fish, and forests, our global GDP, the standard measurement of well-being, continues to grow, and most economic forecasters suggest repetitive growth each year. How can we have exponential growth on a finite planet? It might be that we're cooking the books when it comes to our ecological accounting. Just as financial markets are subject to boom and bust, natural resources, ecosystems, and climatic regulators can be pushed to their limits as well. Only when ecosystems crash or resources are depleted, we cannot remedy them by simply stimulating our economy. I think as surfers, the notion of circular systems and finite resources is easy to understand. Imagine the barrel, possibly the pinnacle of the surfing experience. The wave approaches and the trough of the wave slows as it interacts with the ocean's bottom contours. As the trough slows, the lip folds over itself, creating a perfectly natural circular shape, a magical place we as surfers dream of. Think of the system elements at work here, not just the storm systems that produce the swell, but the reef system which dictates the wave structure, and even the wave itself, a system comprised of different elements like the lip, the face, and the trough of the wave, its unique water mass interacting with the nearshore shallows and the turbulence of the foam ball, all coming together to produce a barrel that constricts smaller and flares wider as it gathers feedback from itself as it travels across the reef or sandbar. An amazingly complex and well-balanced interaction that is gone as quick as it started. Knowing that no two waves are exactly the same, the winds switch, the waves turn to crumbles, giving us an abrupt reminder of the finite nature of the barrel itself. Thank you for that, Nick. If you want to support this show and be entered to win that custom-made Maui Leaf Light, just drop in a donation of any size via our PayPal button on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. It really does go a long way towards making this show possible, and in fact made today's episode specifically possible. It's allowed me to get outside of Southern California and record episodes with people in Hawaii, Australia, and as with today's guest, the East Coast of the U.S. 
and that would be surfboard shaper Bruce Reagan, who is today's guest. He's the head shaper at Quiet Flight Surfboards, which has really been a mainstay on the edge of performance surfboards in Florida for over 30 years. They made boards for Kelly in his youth, the Hobgoods throughout their careers, and they do spend a lot of time and effort helping usher in the youth always through each of those decades. So Reagan discusses um, some of the perils that teens face growing up in this area, specifically Cocoa Beach, surf spots being ruined by real estate development, how he retired at age 23, and that experience that time off really allowed him clarity to redirect his life's path. He also extols the unexpected virtue of imperfection. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Bruce Reagan. in uh, Merritt Island and uh, basically Cocoa Beach, Merritt Island area and uh, you know been here for 55 years. Wow. Same area. Wow. Traveled you know done that done done some of that stuff too though. Was the space program and all of that in place? Full effect. Oh it was? Yeah. yeah. Seen probably every launch you know that kind of kind of deal. Saw the was a Challenger that blew up you know from my from my window at 35th Street in Cocoa Beach, looked out, you know, it was cold, didn't want to go outside. Boom, I look out, I'm like, oh my gosh, that probably wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. You know? And yeah. it just devastating, you know, Crazy. for that that whole, you know, that whole time was pretty pretty rad. Is that why your parents were here? Was for that industry? Yeah, yeah. My dad worked out the cake forever. He retired when he was 48. He's now like 87, 88. So we retired early, took an early out, and just been chilling, you know. And his retirement plan has lasted him for yeah, 40 years? Yeah, Good Him thing. and my mom cruised around a, uh, I don't know, like a Goldwing motorcycle with a trailer, and they toured the East Coast and just chill and camp and had some friends they did it with, so. Amazing. He's had a pretty killer retirement for he all these years. He figured it out perfectly. Early. I took an early retirement when I was probably... I like 23 and had like three years off around that time. Eh, I was probably, I might have been a little younger. But I took three or four years off to figure it out, you know. So I was working and welding and doing machine work. And I was like, this is not what I want to do as a career. Yeah. So I just took time off and surfed and traveled. Yeah, it's different than retirement, though. Well, it was was a type of retirement because I had a bunch of money from doing all that stuff. Yeah. So I just sold everything I had and retired off of the money that I had. Yeah, I spent everything and enjoyed three or four years of learning what I really wanted to do in life. And that was, you know, and make surfboards. Well, I worry about, um, number one, that people retire late. Or by the time they retire, they're unhealthy, and then they can't enjoy retirement. Exactly. So it's good to either do it young or like your dad, 
do it do it right. at a, a decent age where you can. Yeah, but the other problem is I worry about people. Um, people live so much longer now than they did right. and modern medicine is going to allow right. certainly my generation to live longer so when i was growing up they were like oh you can retire at 55 and then at a certain point it was like 62 yeah and it's like well now you're gonna live till 90 so yeah. you got to plan for 30 years exactly and your healthcare expenses yeah. in those 30 years are right. way higher than they ever oh, were yeah, before for sure. for sure so it's really amazing to hear that your dad's lived more than half of his life without working exactly it's incredible it's pretty insane yeah yeah how did you get involved in surfing? Do you remember like your first? Oh yeah, I mean, me and a buddy of mine, a friend of ours, gave us a longboard. We'd go out to the pier here in Cocoa Beach, or we'd go to Jetty Park up here, just just down the road. And we finally ended up breaking the board in half at like the pier. So I think he got the nose, I got the tail. My neighbor down the street made this god awful single fin with a plywood, you know, plywood skeg in boat resin it was brown and ugly i don't even think he sanded it and it had little bubbles all over it so every time you it was like a textured deck basically right but it was a great board it was fun hmm. you know but that's that was my first like into surfing was you know playing on a longboard till it broke who were the guys at the time who were um number one the shape the surfers that you looked up to and then were there shapers as well who you were familiar with i mean Back then, nothing. It was just basically, I, I didn't know anybody's name. You know, you used to hear like the Crawford or the this or the that, you know, like Jeff Crawford back in the day at the inlet. And there were certain people that surfed the inlet. And then that was, you know, that was kind of the people that I was, you know, hearing about. And there was a Gary Paul and then there was guys at Satellite. There were certain crews, you know, and then came the you know Keckley and the Rudolphs and the that kind of Charlie Coon in that era you know was yeah. was was latter but the early stuff was basically a lot of longboard guys and us hanging out at like Islander Hut and I know you, if you talk to Keckley about that at all that was a Cocoa Beach hangout spot oh okay and like all the hot people that you know were, were up and coming surfers went there you know yeah. so that was kind of the hotbed what was your, as a young kid, what was your exposure to surfing? Which magazines did you have access to? Was everything. there an East Coast mag? Like Yeah, it was pretty much everything. I mean, you know, you had surfer surfing, all that kind of stuff. And there was some East Coast mag. Some of it's a little blurry because I did some things that I can't remember. Everything. <laughs> you, hit, you bumped your head along I the did. Way? I bumped my head a few times. And uh, <laughs> you learn from that. Yes. Um, I heard if you bump it again sometimes, all the memories come back. Man, I might need to try that. <laughs> I saw it in a Popeye episode yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah, right. um, who, what was your introduction into board building? Uh, introduction was with those guys that built that board like way back. I was probably, it was probably like 10. Wow. Maybe 9. And I went down there and watched them do this. They did it in their porch, basically built the fin, you know, peeled the glass off the, the longboard, did the whole thing by hand basically. So it was pretty, it was a pretty cool experience, you know, to check them out and what they were doing. Cause I had no clue. Right. You know, and I don't know that they had a clue either, but they were learning. Yeah, exactly. You know, so that was the cool part where they took two boards and, you know, made, well, took one board and made two boards basically. Right. So when did you kind of look at shaping as a potential career well that that like that time that i was telling you i kind of it was probably early 80s i got into it my buddy's like hey man 
you haven't been working, you want to go back to work? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, come learn how to polish and, uh, you know, gloss and polish boards. And I'm like, cool, sounds great, you know. So that's kind of, that was my introduction into kind of working with surfboards. And then I learned how to glass them and shape them and airbrush and everything that goes along with it. There's very few people that kind of know the whole thing, right. you know, from start to end and can actually do it you know anybody can say they can I've I've kind of done it and there's a handful of guys that can still you know say that they've done each part of that and that's why I like the in, in surfing you know a lot of people have have gone on the CAD machines and now they're a shaper whereas a lot of people have started out working with surfboards and learning all about them by feel, you know, by polishing or doing some other job besides going straight into the the shaping part of it, you know, so it's kind of that's a graduation step that I think was good back then for people, Yeah, was to learn each, you know, each step of the way. Um, Why? I mean, do you think that the boards, if you build the board from (laughs) beginning to end yourself, does that board perform differently? No, not at all. I'm just saying that I think it worked to my benefit to know how to do each part of it, to know what goes into it. So when you shape a board, you've kind of got to look at the guy behind you and what he's going to have to do to it. The glasser, if you make some kind of funky wing or, or glass some weird channel or something like that in there, it's going to make it real difficult for him to, to do that next job. Right. And then in turn, your sander, by knowing how to sand, you know how to do the next step. So you're going to know, if I do this to this board, it's going to look really cool, but is it going to be, is it going to look good in the end? Is the guy going to actually be able to do it without having a bunch of air bubbles or having trouble actually doing the process to the board? Yeah. You know, so. I um, did this four-part series with Dave Parmenter on, mm-hmm. like, Board Building 101, right, basically, right. and he... Um, sends all of his boards to get glassed at the Waterman's Guild, right. Greg Martz's place. And he's like, yeah, I intentionally, and he does a bunch of channels and stuff, and he's like, yeah. I intentionally will leave hard edges off knowing it'll make the laminator's job easier for me to leave that off, but also knowing that the sander will make it up for me in the Can end. Can put it back, exactly. But, and I'm like, well, first of all, it takes a tremendous amount of trust and communication through that right. process, especially if you're separated by 300 miles or right, whatever right. they are. But I also, and I get like in that scenario, everybody is super specialized in what they do, right. which is also kind of great. But I also love the idea of built by one pair of hands. You know what right. I mean? Because I've had plenty of boards throughout my life. Where it was like, yeah, the guy shaped it, laminated it, and there's got to be some sort of magic within yeah. if you're the only guy. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, that's you get you get what you put into it. Like the the guy who shaped it knows exactly at the end of the day what he put into it. So then he's going to know what to do to it, and in the end, the edges and the this and the that that he put into the board. You know, so that that's kind of the special part. I used to always sand my own boards. Because I wanted that last little thing, you know, I did it in the start, probably airbrushed it, didn't glass it, but I wanted that last little, okay, I'm going to do this little tweak to it, and those little refined things mm-hmm. that if you know how to sand, 
that's the whole thing. And like you said, you can you know you can get the glasser. The glasser you kind of can roll some edges. The sander brings back what's shaped. You know, if the glasser messes something up, the sander can fix it. So that's why I said it's kind of nice knowing each step and knowing how to do it because then you know what the next guy's going to have to do. Or you can communicate. Tell the sander, hey, bring my edge to here. I want it hard back here. I want it soft in here. Yeah, right. That kind of thing. Do you remember, who was the guy that introduced you to board building? Um, Jeff Haney at Ocean Image was the original guy I started out with. And I was doing, um, like, fine sands for him, basically. And I fine sanded tons of boards. First board I actually shaped, I bought a $5 blank at a garage sale made the board, made it a little bit too thick, had a buddy who rode the thing forever. I think he still has it. I'm talking, Wow. this is a long time ago, Wow. you know, but it worked great and he rode the board forever, hmm. but it was just a tad bit thick for me, but he loved it. He was a little heavier guy, you know, so it was kind of neat to go take a $5 blank and I went and did it all the way through, obviously, you know, and the fact, that kind of thing. the fact that you even live in an area where blanks are available at garage sales yeah, is kind of funny. It was, it was pretty crazy. You know? I was just like, oh, dude, what are you going to do with this blank? <laughs> Most people are like scrounging to find blanks and they don't know. Right, anywhere. right. Yeah, um, it was a good blank. I mean, I don't remember what it was specifically, what kind it was. Yeah. Was, it, was it Clark foam? Who knows? It probably was a Clark foam blank. I just can't remember. Somebody told me they were blowing blanks out here. There was like East Coast foam. No, there was. There was a few distributors back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never I, heard that before. I think Larry Pope originally brought in, I think it was Clark Foam. Oh, if wow. If I remember correctly, back in the day. Everybody mentions Larry Pope. Larry Pope seems to have been involved in everything from photography to yeah. board building yep. to importing, yeah. apparently. I don't know the import part, but well, I know. Well, bringing yeah. in the Clark Foam. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not technically import, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what's who is Larry Pope? Or who is he? Um, he's kind of he's kind of retired. He was he was a board builder. You know, he did the photography thing, like you said. He did the uh, he did a lot of glass work and sanding. Sanding was basically his forte. That's what he was really good at. Really known for is his sand jobs. He would bang out a million boards a day forever. And then he was just like, I'm over it. I'm shutting mm. it down. You know, couldn't get a good glasser in there. And his son did it for a while, that kind of thing. So, yeah. what was that first label that you were shaping under? Uh, Ocean Image was the first board that I was shaping under. And then I got my own, was like Razor. Really blew up. I'm sure you've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> It was a scooter line, right? Yeah, it was. A little two -wheel. They kind of. I wish I'd have, you know, patented that. I could have maybe hooked that up somehow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, and did that, and then I started with these guys. I was doing work with Quiet Flight for for years after that. You know, back it was probably probably late '80s, early '90s when I started here, and been been with them ever since. Running the factory, doing the whole thing for eons. Can you tell me the Quiet Flight story? Like, how did the brand begin? What was your early exposure to it? Now, the, that was one of my earlier boards when I was buying my boards. Was, oh, really? was a Quiet Flight. Everything was like a round, like the board that you saw in the hallway here. It was a round, rounded pin, a little bit fuller nose, you know, single fin, and that's kind of with a little maybe a bump wing. The original guy was uh, 
I want to say it was Tom Dugan, uh, Regis Chapinko, and somebody else, and they had this store that still exists, the building still exists, down in uh, South Cocoa Beach, right before Patrick, and that was the original Quiet Flight store, per se. And uh, the original, they probably don't want me to tell you this, but the original name, Quiet Flight, was Did You Have a Quiet Flight Over? Bringing things in. God, it <laughs> took me a second to catch that. Right. God, so. that's funny. I've, I don't know why I didn't put that in my notes for what to ask you. Right. But right. I've wondered what the name was for so yeah. long. I thought it was some like estuary bird that flies <laughs> around here or something. It's probably not a good thing to say, but that's it. Did you have a quiet flight? That is yeah. amazing. So, that is that was... amazing. Growing up in Southern California. I didn't know a lot about right. Florida, and but I knew of Quiet Flight. Right. That's where Keck actually got his start was with Quiet Flight. Did you go into that with him at all? We did. Okay, yeah. so that's where he got it, and then it turned into you know this and that with Kelly and, and all that kind of stuff. Kelly and his brother, Sean. Were you working for the brand at that time? I wasn't in here. I was just after that. Okay. So, yeah. What? Where were you at in the Kelly saga? Like, was he... 10, 12? Yeah, he was young. I can remember him like I was telling you about the place. It was called Islander Hut. Everybody met there. I remember Kelly as this kid, you know, three feet tall or less, dragging a boogie board, going out there and just ripping on the bu- on the boogie board. And you're like, dude, everybody, if that kid stays with it, he's going to be really good. You know, and that's what I, that's a real vivid memory is that before he even really started surfing was just killing it on a boogie board you know hmm. this little kid you know him and his brother right so for years what do you what do you think it was how is he so good it's, at it's, such a young age that's just a raw talent you know i think it's something that you just you're born with that kind of talent that he has that's progressed him through how many years you know has he been in it and you know it's it, that's incredible that somebody can stick with it that long a lot of people have to work at it yeah. You know? I mean, it's and I'm training. Sure he has too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Way, to stick with it. But I mean, the original, just raw talent, he was super talented. You know, and there's, I've made boards for a million different people, you know, and pro guys and whatever. And there's some people that are just naturals, you want to say. They don't have to work at it as hard. You know, they just, everything flows, everything looks good, you know. And then there's guys that are kind of jerky and have to work on their style, you know. So. Did you work with him at any point directly making boards for him? No, that was kind of that was that was Keck's deal. He kind of took him under his wing, and we've got pictures of him riding quiet flights, Kelly back in the day. Yeah. And uh, Richard Munson did a few for him, and uh, it was mainly Keck kind of took him under his wing, and it was the Keckley logo, and right. and they made the boards here at Quiet Flight. Yeah. You know, for years. Who are the early athletes, like top-level athletes, that you started working directly with and building boards for? Um, a lot of them were, were with Quiet Flight, and I couldn't. A lot of them were amateurs um, <clears throat> that just didn't make it. You know, there were we had tons and tons of people. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, didn't. I mean, there were so many kids that just. And Cocoa Beach is horrible for that with a lot of kids because they were so talented and just got dragged down the partying, drinking, drugs, and just went left when they could have gone straight and really been been somebody. You know, Kelly was kind of straight edge where he 
focused, stayed on it. You know, his brother was a phenomenal surfer, Sean, and Sean went down the party road. He could have easily been as good as Kelly, if not better. You wow. Know? And everybody, you know, I mean, if you're honest about it, some people will tell you, you know, back in the day, the kid was super good surfer. Still rips, you know, yeah. but he's not that same person. Hmm. So, I mean, there's so many people, just it's a crazy amount of people from our area just get sucked into the, the vortex, you know. Is that vortex worse here, you think, than maybe like Huntington Beach or Newport Beach in California or Santa Cruz? or? I don't know the party part of the scene out there. I'm sure there's tons of people. You know, you had your, you know, like edgy people out there that you had edgy people here. You know, it's the same same thing, probably different different area. I don't know how prevalent drugs are in certain places and how the party scene was there in the 80s where it was here, you know, the 80s yeah. and 90s. The other thing I wonder is, um, so, yes, that's a factor kind of in all places. The one thing that's a unique factor for you guys out here is you don't have the epicenter of the surf industry. Right. And I think there, do you feel there's a um, lack of attention or a lack of focus? I I would definitely say if we had more waves here, you know, we would be that cool, you know, California is more more than we are. They kind of look down on people from Florida, I think, sometimes because they think, oh, kooks, you know, they never get waves, blah, blah, blah. And then a lot of the kids go over there. Our younger kids are going over there, and basically a lot of, a lot of them here that are good go over there and get spanked because there's so many kids over there that are so good now, you know, and just they're kind of... It's kind of a humbling thing because they've got places to surf out there all the time that are incredible point breaks and things like that where, you know, we're struggling on some mushy whatever, you know, if you don't live in a certain place, you know, like, you know, Ponce or New Smyrna or Sebastian or somewhere where there's a good wave that you can train on all the time, you're not going to be as good as the guy that's got trestles and, you know, whatever, you know, it's just... A consistent wave here is a little less prevalent, I would say, than it is there. Yeah. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. 
and you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So I just think too, when you're getting to the age where drugs become an option, um, in California, if you have any surfing credential and contest results or whatever, you've often already linked with a sponsor, right. sometimes are getting paid. Right. And when that becomes a viable career option, drugs sometimes become less of an option. Right. Sometimes they're more prevalent, but other times, like if your parents are intact and all that sort of stuff, right. it's like right. they usher you into the career path right. as opposed to... Right, the, exactly. It's the same way here. I just think that it's, it's harder to get sponsored exactly. from here. Yeah than it is there because everybody's out there. They've got exactly. everything out there. Oh, that kid's hot, you know, he surfs for me, take him, you know. You know, you got Bielis or somebody going, dude, that's that's my boy, That's that that guy's gonna be somebody you guys wanna look at, you know, whereas here it's, it's a little, it used to be, you know, they would sponsor kids and stuff from here, but I, I would say in the last, I don't know, let's say 10 years, it's gone a lot less toward sponsoring kids from here than it used to be you know i think it's true across the board yeah there's fewer I mean, sponsorships just, everywhere yeah, everywhere you know and and not not just because they're from here but i think it's a little harder when you are from here let's put it that way agreed yeah um the other interesting detail in the as i look at the industry as a whole is how um successful retail is here I think Matt was saying there's like 13 surf shops in Cocoa Beach. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. We don't have 13 in Huntington Beach. Yeah. You know? It's not even close. I mean, we have like four, maybe. Yeah. And the legacy of them, too. You know? Like, a lot of them have been around for 40, oh, yeah. 50 years. And this is all while retail as a whole has gone away. Right. So, what do you attribute that to? And, and speak from the position of Quiet Flight. I mean, Quiet Flight's huge. Well, I mean, as... as you know, Ron John's, let's just say, that that's kind of a tourist destination just because that's the spot, you know. That's not even really Cocoa Beach per se. Cocoa Beach is another, you know, four or five miles downtown Cocoa Beach, but everybody associates that with Cocoa Beach. This is it right here, you know, 520 and A1A, and it's it's really further down the road. And that's where one of the, uh, the quiet flights that's now a Kyla shop is. But the original, like Ed and Jim, that owned Quiet Flight, they sold to Billabong. They had about 15 retail stores when they sold. You know, they retained the Quiet Flight surfboard manufacturing, but the stores, like the one in New Smyrna, we had them all over the place. There was, there's one in CityWalk still, you know, and that's a Billabong slash Quiet Flight. There was a couple in Tampa, you know, there was, there was tons of them. All up and down the East Coast, there was stuff. They had Billabong stores, but they were associated with. Uh, they had a Billabong store in, in uh, Times Square. Wow. Below the TRL building, and that's what Ed, kind of one of the owners of Quiet Flight back in the day, he had the vision to keep building on the brand, and then he sold out. You know, at a good time. Good for him. And got out of it. And the only real Quiet Flight store that there is now is the one in New Smyrna that's strictly Quiet Flight. We have a bunch of places that sell them. Right. But that's the only one that still has the Quiet Flight name. There's one in Cocoa Beach that has uh, 
it's Quiet Flight Catalyst because they never took down the sign. But that's still a distributor for us, you know. And do each of those stores um, distribute boards as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, there's quite a few. I mean, we have quite a few stores. There's stuff in uh, St. Augustine. There's stuff in uh, Jack's Beach. Um, Aqua East up there sells boards for us. So we have some, you know, some outlets for it. So we yeah. stay pretty busy. We're pretty steady all year, every year. I mean, back in the day, we were doing 60 to 90 a week. Wow. Had three shapers, just two laminators going crazy. You yeah. Know? And then the, the industry kind of took a little jog when Clark Foam shut down. You know, everybody freaked out. And that's when China infiltration came in. Yeah. You know, they, oh, well, we've got all these boards accumulated. We're going to dump them. You mm-hmm. guys, you know, you can't get Clark Foam anymore. You got to get these, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, we never faltered from that because we got a ton of blanks from Clark Foam. And then we got some from other places, you know, around the world that were making blanks that you've never heard of. Right. But decent quality blanks, you know. Right. So that's kind of, that kind of brought, let them get a foothold in the door when all that happened. So that's, that's really when all that kind of. It's the first sign of the apocalypse. It was, and it was funny. I was cleaning my garage out, and I saw this article that uh, a local paper had done. Uh, it was, gosh, I can't remember the date, but it was the date that Clark Foam had shut down. December 5th, 2005, I think? Or it, December yes, 6th? Yes. Yeah. And uh, they'd come in and done an article with me and took a picture of me shaping a board. And it was uh, apocalyptic. It was like the end, you know? And that was what the article was. But... It obviously wasn't, and people are still making boards. We're just getting them, you know, you get blanks from somebody else, and obviously U.S. blanks kind of took that over. So. Yeah. When did you first connect with the Hobgoods? Um, we originally started doing boards with uh, Damien, and then uh, he was doing them. I can't remember all the dates and the times, but it was probably around the time Asher Nolan, all these other guys, uh, Gabe Kling. There's a bunch of guys, you know, East Coast guys that are really good that were tour worthy and working on it, getting on it, doing all that kind of stuff. So that was probably around that time. And then uh, CJ was more the last, I don't know, probably eight years or so, seven, eight years, when he was still on tour. Who were they to you when they were, I mean, were you high? Well, they were Groms back in the day, like ripping, you know, you're like, God, those kids are so good, you know, and that's... That's kind of who they were to me. They're, you know, it was a different generation, obviously. Yeah. You know, the Dave Spear, the, the, the guys like that. And like I said, there's tons of talented guys that would serve, you know, Sebastian Inlet. And that was like, that was the spot to be and be seen. You know, that was, if you were getting photos there, you're, you made it, you know, first peak, whatever, you know, Sebastian. And a lot of the guys, that was kind of how they got recognized like Keck would always surf down there Rich Rudolph there's a handful of guys that would always surf the peak there and that's that's kind of where everybody was getting shots in the mag and that was the spot to be and blah 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 how um, important is is it or just kind of informative is it for you as the shaper to work with somebody like Damien 
in the early days like that in terms of refining your craft? Well, it was with, with, I would say with both of them, you know, getting feedback and things like that and knowing, you know, you could make 10 boards exactly the same and then one of them is going to be the magic board. So that's kind of where CJ would travel the world and bring back stuff because all of the, all the, all the guys around the world get boards usually from a location that they go to. You know, they're getting boards from a local shaper, whatever it is, whatever location they're at. They, they could have boards waiting there for them. You know, so by him taking a few boards from here and having his magic quiver that he would take around where a lot of these guys would have a quiver with them and travel with them, he would, you know, along with everyone else, would get something and go, hey man, you might want to look at this one. This, this was a good one. You know, stuff like that. And that's kind of always changing it up. And you're like, wow, I didn't think about that. You know, boards are all made the same. They look the same. But there's these little tweaks and, you know, a little here, a little there. And that's what really brings that, that magic stick out, you know. Are those two guys specifically astute enough to know what it is that's working in one board versus the other? Or do you figure that out on your own? That's more, they would say this was a magic board and that was what they knew it, it was a magic board. They didn't really know, you know, everything about it. Like, hey, this one had this or that. They'd throw it under their arm and go, this one feels pretty good, you know? And then they'd go take it out. A lot of guys, you know, if it feels good, you know, under their arm and it, that's nine times out of 10, that's the main thing is how it feels. If it feels good, it might not be the best magic board, but if it feels good and you have that like feeling, you could go out there and kill it, you know, and make that board the best board ever because you've grabbed it and that first feeling, you're like, dude, this is a good board. Yeah. You know, and a lot of guys are, are like that, you know, and they'll take it out and, and make it work, you know, because they have that, that feeling that it, it, it's just good. Yeah. What are your thoughts on raising kind of a homegrown local grom whether it's kelly or damien and then they kind of get onto that world level and then partner up with you know an international board building brand and move on without you it's always i could there's so many kids that they get the start here and i tell them when they come you know hey this is going to be a stepping stone for you oh no no man we're with you for life and i'm like i'm telling you i've done this a long time and they get to a certain stage in their career, whatever it is, and they're like, uh, hey, so-and-so. And I'm like, I told you. I go, and it's fine. I'm used to it, and I don't, it, it's okay. You know, it's okay to move on. You know, to get it, it's like when you get a sponsor, you know, and then you get a new sponsor for your clothing or your wetsuit. Is the other guy bummed because he was with you in the beginning? Maybe a little, Sometimes. but... but you're going to keep going forward, you know, you, you can't, there is some, I've had some groms that have stayed with me throughout, you know, and it, and it felt good because I still have a few of them that, you know, are older now and they got boards from way, way back when, you know, there's tons of guys that are like that, but they're, your guys that are looking to progress are like on to the next thing, you know, if somebody offers them a little, a little sugar, they might take that, you know. Is it generally a money decision? Just somebody off? Because I'm thinking, look, you want to get the best boards possible right. and you want to win world titles or whatever your goal right, is. Right, right. Which will equate to more money in right. the future. 
Right. So is it just the short-term contract that is the appeal? Or are they getting better boards? Or are they getting just fresh I think it, I think it's like just maybe just something new. You know, there's always that thing of new. New is sometimes better, but maybe it's not, you know. Oh, hey, I got this new whatever it is, you know. And, and they're all super stoked because they got this new whatever board it is you know and it's not necessarily it could be a new wetsuit it could be anything but just that that thing of hey i got this new sponsor and it's kind of like they look back sometimes and go man i should have stayed with those boards because these didn't work exactly yeah. and you know have i taken kids back or whatever yeah but i mean the reason why i ask is the most um successful shaper surfer relationships we've ever seen in our time are ones that are developed over the course of decades. Right. Kelly and Al, John, John and Pizel, yeah. Tom Curran and Al. Like agreed. So there's a part of me that recognizes that all of this refinement and fine tuning takes literally decades. Yeah. Oh yeah. To to just jump onto another bandwagon, I can tell you right now, most of the time it's not really the kids it's the parents that think it's oh they just need that and they're the, the shiny new whatever and then they get that and then all of a sudden they don't get the results that they were getting on the other one well it's got to be the board let's go to another one and then they keep going to another one and then the kids like freaking out because he's not getting the results number one and then he's like well maybe I'm not as good you know and it's not that it's that you didn't stay with somebody long enough to go hey we're gonna figure this out, you know. It's a long. It takes a long. It's time. a journey, it you really know. I, I I've been doing doing boards for this girl recently, Ava Woodland, and she's been doing great. Beautiful young girl, 16 years old, model, you know, basically, and she is doing really well, and she's sticking with it. You know, is somebody gonna probably come along and offer her something? Sure, absolutely. Is am I gonna be bummed a little, but if, if it helps her out, I've known her since she was a, a baby, you know, great. But that's the thing, you know, you're going to have somebody always offering and that, and, and it might not be the best thing for them in the long run because they're just going to something new that might not be better. You right. know, they were getting refined and kind of, you know, yeah. that kind of thing and dialed in. Like you said, you know, you got your Pizel, you got your Kelly, you got all these. You know. It's interesting. Um, kind of connecting all those dots in terms of like homegrown board building and then also that retail thing like I was saying retail on the east coast seems to be thriving a lot more than I've seen it thrive in on the west coast certainly surf retail and you mentioned you have all the boards distributed through all these channels right um, what are your thoughts on the the most famous homegrown Kelly partnering with Firewire and making the boards available worldwide and not building them locally and all right. that sort of stuff. I mean, the worldwide thing, it's it's great because, you know, you're going to the world and bringing your product to the world. And basically, it's the only way to do it is to go mass produce things like that. You know, you have to be able to distribute and make them in different places and things like that. The only thing I don't... I can't really wrap my head around is bringing them into the country so cheap that it undermines 
what we're selling our boards for. And then, yeah, retail is great because they make that extra nugget on it, but the guys who actually build the boards, you know, here and put their sweat and tears into that and use first quality materials, that kind of thing, you're being kind of undermined from a cheaper board, you know, brought in. You know, yeah, the margins are better on that. Right, it's a better business model. It is, and, and that's why I can't, you know, I can't hate on Kelly for getting on a business that he he went into to make money. You know, is is it the best thing for the industry? If he didn't do it, somebody else would. You know, that's kind of the only way you you can kind of justify it. Do I like it? No. Yeah. But that's what you're dealing with. You know. Yeah. Somebody's going to make the money. I mean, that business model was in place before Kelly oh, started part, partner yeah, with them. Yeah, yeah, have sure. you talked to Kelly? Have, do you have any relationship with him prior to? I, you know, I've talked to him. You know, I haven't talked to him specifically about this, and yeah. I can, I can definitely see where he would say, "This is a business, you know, and I'm making money with this." So. And he's getting a bunch of different shapers to do that firewire model, but a lot of those guys and what they ride back in the day with firewire, you know, certain people, they were making them regular boards and painting them to look like the firewire. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's a stringer, regular poly or epoxy board. It's not what you're mass producing. Right. That's my other glitch is like, hey, if you're gonna make that board, you ride that board, that's what you're selling. Don't falsify what you're selling versus, you know. Yeah, I've thought about that too. I don't, I've never spoken to them about it and I don't think that they're intentionally falsifying. I think it's that the R&D models have to be made out of right. poly uh, and stringer because yeah. that's what you can adapt right. with real quickly right. and refine. Yeah. And then once they get that dialed, it becomes a model, a model and you build the mold and then you invest all that money right. and the model goes out. Right. But if you are using the, I don't know, imagery or video or whatever from the poly right. where he's shredding on exactly. it and then selling a different construction, I could see where that could be interpreted as um, yeah. whatever. But yeah, I've never had that conversation or talked to anybody. Yeah, that's 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 my only problem with it. You know, yeah, somebody's going to do it, and it might as well be somebody that I know, and you're making money with it. Whatever, that's fine. Yeah, I just that was my only big thing is make them the same price as the other boards, you know, and then you're still going to sell them, but your margins aren't going to be as good. I I would say, you know, every keep it even playing field when it comes to surfboards. So everybody can, you know, you don't have to undercut yeah. to be able to be on that same playing field. Right. That's have you seen the, let's just say, imported boards be, uh, affect your guys' numbers at all? I mean, I didn't really see any in the water. I see more of them in Southern California than I do yeah. here. I think it's more your beginner kind of surfer a lot of times, too, with... There, you know, these are I'm talking pop outs and stuff. Your NSP, your certain models where you're getting an entry level surfer, surfer getting a cheaper board because mom and dad can go get that cheaper board. If Johnny doesn't like to surf, then they 
get rid of the board and they haven't spent you know six or eight hundred dollars on a new sport for Johnny to take up yeah. you know so that kind of thing yeah you've got to have a margin board kind of that will come in there and fill that so yeah um, not to mention the whole soft top thing which I don't see yeah. a lot of here either well there is but it's more like I would say it's more like surf schools things okay. like that that use a lot of the soft tops and a lot of kids they mess around on them it's great to have a soft top and go out and mess around when it's small and take the fins out and run into each other and have a good time you know saw yeah. that the other day the kids were having a blast yeah you know yeah I was in Hawaii recently and um, I was shocked to see how many soft tops there were on the top of vehicles right you know like just going to the beach I was keeping track and it was like I don't know. I want to say twenty five percent of all boards right. I saw were soft tops, and then I thought, well, they're probably tourists who are buying them at Costco. So I started paying attention to that, and it was like a lot of locals, even right. with soft tops, right. which it was just really kind of surprising. Right, and like I said, a lot of people I know have them. They're like, man, have you tried this? I'm like, man, I'm not riding that. And then I, you go out and you try, and you're like, that was kind of fun. You know, it was just that. That's it's a different type of surfing you take it a lot less seriously which is fun right and that's what makes i think the fun part of it is you know you take the fins out and run into your buddy and push him off his board and jump on his that kind of thing yeah so yeah it definitely has performance limitations but just eliminating your own performance anxiety makes you have i have to do the certain thing Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah um in regard to waves side note i surfed new smyrna the last few days super fun that's when it's summertime or going into anything, they pick up the swell. When it's small here, it can be another foot or two bigger there. It's just yeah. always that's a little funnel, and it'll be waist high and fun there, and it'll be knee high and crap here. And yeah. we're like, are you serious? You know. But a lot of times when we get north swells, you know, or even south swells, and a lot of our stuff here has to do with them dredging and putting sand on the beach to save the condos and it's ruining our surf break don't make me preach because they're covering up reefs they're really screwing up the ecosystem because all these big condos want them to pump sand on the beach so they can you know make their combo it's just crazy you know the is there any saving the condos though? I mean, no, isn't it, it just going to eventually? It, every north swell, they could pump in sand and, and make the dune and do all this and plant sea oats. The first time we get a north swell, gone. Yeah. I talked to a guy that they they'd uh, I don't know it was a company that was was putting all the sand on heavy equipment, doing all the stuff on the beach. And I go, I go tomorrow. You just finished right here. I go come here tomorrow. We're getting a north swell. This is going to be gone. It's going to be a straight down six or eight foot drop. All that sand is going to be pushed out. And he's like, no, no, no. I met him there. Sure enough. Really? Gone. I mean, it was it was crazy because they just, it, it's millions of dollars, you know. And it's basically taking that sand and it pushes it right back out, you know. They put it on the, on the beach and try to save yeah. the million dollar condos and... It's just crazy. Yeah, it is. They have to do something else. They have to do groins or sandbags or artificial reefs or something to break the surf up and catch sand because 
it's just you're pissing in the wind. It is, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, how closely do you follow the WSL at this point? Um, I think I used to be more into it before, but now it's kind of neat to just go on and you can check out YouTube, you can check out whatever, you can pop up Heats on Demand, and it's on your computer, you know. And it's a little bit, they've got some more stuff on TV, like I watched the Barbado con- Barbados contest, uh, you know, on YouTube, or w- it was WSL actually. And uh, that was cool, you know, to be able to do that, and, and you can check Heats out and this and that, so that kind of it, it'll, it'll suck you in when I'm really into watching a contest. You sit there for hours, yeah. you know, and, and just watch and watch and watch, so. What surf media do you follow nowadays? Are you subscribed to magazines any longer? Which no, websites do you go to? I just, you know, I check out local stuff and basically the contests, and that's it. I don't really go, you know, ESM used to have a magazine. Everybody used to have a magazine. And now it's just, if you go on, there's, it's just not the same as picking that mag up and thumbing through and looking at pictures and little articles. It's to me, it's not the same as going on the internet. It's just, you know, it's just not, it's not the same as it used to be. That part of it, that's what's really changed, you so, know, is, is all the, the driving of all, oh, I made an ad, I made a shot, I made, a, made the magazine, you know, my sponsors, I'm getting paid by the sponsor for this picture and, and that kind of thing. That's just not, not there anymore. So, there are a couple magazines that do still exist, so why don't you subscribe to those? You're just over it? Kinda. Kinda. I don't either. So I'm not I just I'm not I haven't figured out even why I'm not engaged. I don't with know. It. I really don't know. Yeah. I mean it's it's I just don't. I mean there are different mags. There's you know, there's some really killer mags that have unreal pictures in them and stuff like that, but it's just I haven't been as, as much into that as I used to be as far as like you know buying a magazine basically I told you I was up here for the Florida Surf Film Festival right that was and it's the second time I've been to it it's the best uh, or most representative of my youth like the best surf experience that is similar to what I remember from my youth right right where it's like community driven quality kind of viewing experience right um it feels like a throwback in a way i was really psyched to see it that was in Smyrna. yeah yeah Smyrna's got a really cool little vibe their community it's a little different than here because Smyrna's so tight and it's small yeah whereas our stretches from you know basically by the cape all the way down to the inlet so Brevard is that huge area. Yeah. So it's not like there's one little nugget that right. everybody goes to and it's a little tight thing. It's kind of so spread out that it's almost cooler to go up there. Yeah. And do something that's tight knit, you know? Like But when you see that that loose knit kind of thing in the industry too, is exactly why kids are having a hard time getting sponsored yeah. and exact because it's like there's no magazines to rep to showcase their thing right there's um 
all the other things that we've just discussed, it's kind of like everything's just all fractured out. Right. Now, you know? Right. So where do you get your surf media? Do you, um, is it just, do you, are you on Instagram at all? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. It seems to be where it all lives. It is. It kind of is, you know, and you can follow people's stories and it kind of gives, you know, if you follow a pro surfer, yeah, you can kind of see what they're, what they're doing right now because most of them, you're going to see their latest vid, little clip, or you're going to see their latest stuff that they're repping or whatever, you know, it's such a, it's, it, that's your advertisement now. It's like how, that's the thing that is really weird with the surf industry now is a lot of what basic the kids have it's all based to me upon how many followers you have on instagram and all that kind of stuff and it's like well i've got this many followers so i'm gonna get this product and rep this product for these people and they're gonna you know hook me up it's so, factored into their contracts yeah now. It, it's that's the crazy part of yeah. the whole surf industry is is that you yeah. know that that much that has that much to do with everything that's going on it's pretty crazy it really is it's a weird time but it's better for the consumer i am a consumer and it's yeah. better for me because when i was a kid everything was funneled through three publications right. and five brands yeah. and so that's all that I had to rely on right. and there probably was an overseer in each of those organizations that just deemed what little David right. Scales was going to see Exactly. and it's like now I'm the one who gets to pick my own journey right, right. You know? yeah. which is kind of rad yeah no it is that part of it's cool because yeah. you can you can take a surf trip by looking at looking at yeah. your phone you know oh wow it's like that you know Nick is really good right now, or Hawaii, oh, look at that, you know. Not only, and to further your analogy of taking the surf trip, those guys have GoPros in the barrel, exactly. and you're getting barrel, right. it's like, what the heck? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, but people just got to figure out a way to monetize it, because it's uh, harder to make a living and harder to kind of chase those swells right. without monetizing. Right. But how has your guys' business been, um, with all the things that we've discussed, board building as a whole are you up are you down are you i would say we're up um, okay good we're, we're very steady like that's always been our business is is steady you know uh, this number every every week every year you know it's that's we've kind of we're one of the only companies that stay steady good and i don't ever brag about it i'm just like blessed to have that you know what i mean it's like you're not like gonna gonna brag about something you're just gonna go with it and go man I'm stoked we're you know we're doing this and then I have people oh man yeah I'm, I'm kind of struggling you know I only did a few boards and I'm like well you know we're, we're doing all right you know yeah. I don't want to say yeah man I'm stacked up I got I got a lot of backlog you know yeah you were talking about obviously CJ demo like guys that you would kind of bring up writing other people's boards and even still I'm sure CJ's writing other boards occasionally. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you write other boards? How, whose boards are you writing? Strictly mine. Are you serious? I'll try somebody's board. You know, I'm not. I'll just make something new. If I don't like what I'm riding, I'm going to make something new and come up with a new model that I can ride. You know, that's going to be something different. And I'm obviously for myself always looking for that magic board for myself. You know, and I'll I'll make something and be like, eh, it doesn't ride that good for me. 
and then you you let somebody else ride it and they're like dude you're not getting this back i love this thing you know yeah but remember you said cj'd bring boards back from around the world and it light bulb would go off and go oh yeah that yeah let me try that yeah so what if you got on that board it's (laughs) (laughs) i i probably should you know, and I have. You know, I, I can't say I never have. Okay. Because I have. I've, I've ridden Mayhems. I've ridden everything, okay. you know. But it's not like I'm not going to go out of my way and go and try to get one and go, hey, I'm going to go try out that new so-and-so and that yeah. model. But, yeah, yeah, for sure I have. Okay. You know. And some things I like. Some things I'm like, dude, give me my board back. You know, just like. And then you have trouble getting your board back because there's, there's a struggle. You know, and that's why I'll do that with people myself and go, man, try this board. I see you struggling. I don't tell them I see you struggling. I'm like, hey, try this board. And then they ride it and they're like, holy crap, dude, this board's not really working for me. And I was, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. you, got, you got to try something new, you know. That's why I understand, like, those guys going to somewhere else and if their equipment could be fine for whatever wave it is, but what if? that local guy there made them just this epic board that they, you know, won $25,000 with in a contest, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. It's a, you know, it was a funny story CJ was telling me about uh, Joel Parkinson. Like, he had this magic board during his heyday of a season where that board was magic. And he was winning everything and doing all this stuff. Well, that board got old or buckled or broken and made a million boards to try to duplicate it and never came up with that that same board you know so it's like that's the thing about boards you know you could make 16 of the exact same boards or five or two or whatever and have them all cut on the machine finish them out and they could all ride a little bit different just because of the stringer and the construction could all be the same but it could be that particular blank with that particular piece of wood in that stringer at that moment. You know? That that wood has different grain right. than the stringer that was cut from the log immediately next to it. Right. Even though they're the same right. log, it's slightly different exactly. grain. Exactly. And that's why, you know, when it comes to like machining, I do a lot of hand shapes. But when it comes to like, you know, putting the board on the machine and having it cut that's fine but the guy that finishes that is where he's going to bring that thing to life yeah his certain way you know like like again matt will finish a board out probably different than somebody else yeah who shaped ghost shapes for him you know and do that little tweak that that other guy didn't do so that's the kind of that's the kind of thing I like about, you know, hand shaping too, you know. Yeah, you might have that little variable, but that little variable could be that little magic. Exactly. So that's that's the other part of that, you know. That's I I more abide by that philosophy. I never want to eliminate the potential for magic by sticking with something that I know can just work good. Right. Cuz good it's is just fine. like my, just like my last one. Well, yeah, it is just like your last one. Exactly. And that's why every time I make a board for somebody, I'm like, I always strive to make it, and it might be the same exact board, but I always strive to make it just a little better to where they're like, dude, this is better than the last one. I'm so stoked. 
so we were talking about Derek Hind earlier, right. and he shapes his own boards too, right. and they're all finless and mostly asymmetrical and really the channels aren't deep but like the um the edges are really hard in the right, channels right. and there's like flanges almost on the rails and so i was checking one of the and the board that he brought here is like yellowed and repaired a million times right. and i was checking this kind of flange super hard edge that ran along the length of the rail and it went really far up the rail and there was all this kind of wavy these undulations to it and i i was feeling it and i asked him i was like is it by design that it's imperfect and wavy? And he just kind of laughed and he's just like, dude, he's like, no, it's not by design, nor is it not by design. It just, that's the way it turned out. Right. And he wasn't too concerned about the, the minutia. And I told him, I go, that's really funny because 99% of shapers I talk to are very concerned about precision and the right. fine details, the refinement and the right, finish. Right. He goes, no. He goes, I talked to Dick, or he had a relationship with Dick Brewer. Right. And he's like, Brewer, it was all just kind of done by hand and by art. And there was a lot of imperfections in his words. And his, um, you know, cohorts at that time, the other shapers around, like, chastised him about it. Like, no, 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 dude, you got to dial it in, dial it in. And Dick was like, no, it doesn't really matter. And he's become the one who everybody venerates and says boards work the best. So you can't not acknowledge that. That there is this element of art to it. Oh, yeah. Mixed in with the science. Oh, for sure. There's this this funny story. This guy got a board. One of our team guys, uh, John Logan was his name, brought this board back. You guys, man, this is this is the board. I mean, it's the board. So we get it back and we're looking at it, and the thing is so twisted. It's just incredibly twisted. So we're like, oh man, how, how are we going to do this? This is why he likes this board. So we made him one identical without the twist. Not even close. Doesn't ride the same. So obviously that twist in the tail and the blank was making this magic board. Imperfection, yeah, the thing was a half inch twist in the back of the tail, maybe more. Wow. But it worked insane. He loved the board, you know, professional surfer, so it wasn't like it was some off the whatever guy, you know, it was a a legit guy. Curran's, that's how the reverse V was created with Curran. I think it was Maurice Cole that shaped that board. It was a mistake. Right. It was a total mistake fluke, and then that became the board that Curran loved and right. did well on. So I think a lot of those kind of design evolutions happen by mistake. Yeah. So it's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, it's kind of neat, that whole, you know, knowing that it, that little imperfection could be the best thing that ever happened. Exactly. Yeah. Are there any, um, watching the world tour, seeing those guys, kind of world-class surfers, I'm sure as a shaper you're kind of always looking at ways that, their shapes could be improved seeing certain bogs or whatever you're like oh you know what might work better for that guy is there anybody um out in internet land who you would love to build boards for and work with um i would say you know i'd love to make one for john john or philippe toledo or or one of those guys you know just because you know that level that they've got you know and uh you know their their style and that would be somebody like John John I'd love to make him a board that'd be awesome 
you know, just if I knew what he rode and could make something similar yeah, and uh, that kind of thing. But just to get their feedback and, hey, man, I like this, I like that, I didn't like that, I hated it, whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's a few people that I love to, like, mess around with. And, and yeah. Um, the final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last board that you rode personally? The last board that I rode, uh, let's see. It was an anti-hero model that I make, and uh, it's a little bit wider tail, um, probably about a 15-inch nose, kind of hybridy, but just took it out to have fun. You know, it wasn't like I was trying to have my performance surf. I was just out there having fun. Had the MR2 Plus One set up in it. It's got a little cha- channel in the tail. Super fun board. You know, it connects the dots from the outside to the inside. You know, and that. Depending on the day and the type of wave, you know, yeah, there is those days where you want your performance squash tail and you're trying to hit it and, you know, get vertical and do all this stuff. And then there's the other days where you're, you know, you might go out on your fish, you know, and you're like, dude, this fish is insane. You're going so fast. You know, it's a twin fin. Yeah. But that's another model that I do. It's got a, a channel bottom and it's a twin fin, but it doesn't ride like a twin fin. Hmm. It rides like a performance type of board. You know, because of the channels in the bottom, and it's just, that's the kind of thing that's really neat is being able to try those boards on certain waves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and have that epic session on that board, but it's not something that you would really normally ride, but it's still super fun, you know. Yeah. So. Awesome. Right on. Well, thank you. All righty. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. He had a blue-eyed love and the Everything that Bruce and I discussed is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Thanks, Bruce. And do yourself a favor and stock up on Slow Tide towels. I was using my towel this weekend and got a random compliment from a stranger. Slowtide.co. Use the promo code PODCAST to save 10%. And, of course, support this show. All of their cotton is certifiably sourced through the Cotton Leads program, which ensures that it's responsibly produced. All of their polyester products are made from 100% recycled post-consumer waste, primarily plastic bottles, which are transformed into premium polyester fibers. I assure you, after your first order, you'll reorder bath towels and slowly replace all of your towel needs. They really are top quality, and I'm honored to be able to share them. Again, slowtide.co, promo code podcast, and they will help keep us in business. Thank you. And also, thanks to the Timponi family, Timponi Surfboards, and their Maui Leaf Light project. If you already have a monthly donation set up, you're already entered to win. If not, you can contribute any size donation through the month of April, and you'll be entered. We will randomly select a winner on May 1st. The winner will win a custom-made pill model Timponi Surfboards built to their specs, and you will only be responsible for shipping costs. You can do that at surfsplendorpodcast.com donate. I hope that you're enjoying the Bells event, even though the waves are pretty meager. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode. Until then, enjoy Easter, enjoy Bells, get back into the water, share some waves, and shred on.